Hello, listeners. Welcome to Hi, How Are You? This week, I got sick. I don't have COVID, but I do have a very sore throat. So we decided not to record a podcast, and we're going to release one of our patron episodes that we recorded with Never Angeline North. I think it's a really cool episode. I hope you like it. Hopefully, I'll be better next week, and we will be back to talking about labor issues in the Talmud. And upcoming soon is our historical series where Sam Biagetti will be coming back. So look forward to that. Thank you all for listening, and Shavua Tov. mic a little closer to your face like this oh yeah that's nice like this that's how you like it that is how the listeners like it and i like it like that as well <laughs> uh anyway let's banter michael let's do professional banter hava how are you <laughs> i just went for it Baruch Hashem, i'm well yesterday i did this really cool thing this really cool video game related thing which i will now talk about i got this controller called a razor kishi which is like a controller that you can hook up to your phone so basically i can turn my phone you can see it right now michael it's like these two little handles that clip on the outside of my phone oh okay it kind of looks like the outside of a nintendo switch kind of exactly it turns your phone basically into a little nintendo switch except i can play all my pc games on my phone so that's really cool and hot and i'm really into it and the insane gaming lifestyle that i'm currently sustaining recently i've been like trying to get back into my meditation practice which is good for me because i really struggle with sort of like traditional jewish prayer so silent meditation is sort of like the closest I can come. So it's been good and like healthy, whatever that means for me to sort of play with that toy again. That's neat. I've been meaning to read some Rabbi Nachman in the kind of vein of contemplative, meditative kind of stuff. That's hot. Yeah, it is hot. That's why, that's not why I do it, but that's the side effect. Mm. I become slightly hotter, hopefully. <laughs> uh, Michael. Hi, how are you? I'm good. What happened since the last time we talked? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> You've been really excited for this episode. It That's was right. your brainchild. This was my brainchild. I invented never is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> we have never back on the show to read a little piece. Never. Angeline North, welcome back to the show. Yes, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. How high are you? Uh, Baruch Hashem. I'm doing uh, pretty well. I have a new friend living with me, and that friend is of the reptilian variety. Right, so just another Jew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he, he is a Jewish snake. A Jake, if you will. A, a Jake, yes. Um, because he has two mothers, and they're both Jewish. <laughs> it's me and my wife. He's living in my bedroom with me. For the past year, I have not shared a bedroom with anyone. And so, I don't know, I did not expect that when I finally did begin sharing a bedroom with someone, that it would be a snake. But I'm kind of into it. Hell yeah. I'm not having sex with the snake. Okay. That's good. I actually have thought for a long time, there's a Talmud about what to do if a snake tries to have sex with you. 
And like specifically, if a snake crawls inside your vagina, how do you lure it out? I, I might need this. <laughs> yeah, and how to know if a snake is horny for you or not. Could you send that to me? I might need this. I really might need this. You, like everyone else, will have to wait to see if I decide to be <laughs> courageous enough to make that episode. Oh, please do. I want to make it because it's a really funny and interesting topic, but also like it is about snakes sexually assaulting human beings and maybe that's not like it might be difficult for someone here's the thing i feel like i feel like if you put a trigger warning at the beginning like con non-con snake impreg yeah yeah exactly exactly you tag it well then i think it's fine yeah just say like guys yeah snakes and pussies watch out <laughs> TW, snakes and pussies, and then you're you're golden. And then mm-hmm. we can just talk about all the like reptile bestiality we want to. I love it. Well, well I'll think about it. I'll <laughs> think about it. I'll work on you. Never, Angeline North, Snake Queen. Tell us about what you are reading for us today. So I'm I'm gonna be reading a piece that I wrote. It's a short, short story. Flash fiction, as the kids say. And by kids I mean like creative writing professors right like actually like 40 year olds and up yes yes actually like editors of literary magazines some of whom may be younger but you know i feel like flash fiction as a category was like a very like kind of like 90s 2000s sort of thing yeah it was hot for a second yeah. i wrote some flash fic yeah flash versus slash Flash, yes. Flash oh. meaning like very short fiction, like shorter than a short story. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, okay, yeah. But the thing is, is I think it was like a fad, but then instead of the fad ending, people just like stopped calling it that. Right. And that's fine. People still like, and people just write things of all different links. And like, that's a normal fine thing and it's just like not like the length isn't like fetishized as much no. right <laughs> i would hate for length to be fetishized <laughs> it's mostly girth that's fetishized yeah right the girth of your fiction yes <laughs> uh, and the strength of your diction <laughs> i no longer have addiction <laughs> I've cured my addiction we've both completed the ultimate tuck yes <laughs> the final tuck Anyway, <laughs> never you have been so gracious as to provide us with a high quality audio recording of you reading the story that we will now play for you. A river walks in on 19 legs. It is taught in a Baraita that Yael Bat Elisha was a woman of many miraculous gifts. Once, when fleeing the Emperor Hadrian, who sought to execute her for avenging the deaths of 100 Jews by Roman soldiers, she found herself in a place that contained no water, only a vast, craggy landscape. And so it was taught that Yael Bat Elisha lay in a cavern overlooking a dry basin and studied Sefer Yetzirah in the hope that water might appear before her. She studied and fasted for six days, and on the seventh, a very large metal grate appeared from across the chasm in front of her. After this, she studied and fasted for another six days, and the next day a shape composed of thirty shades of gray that she could not comprehend appeared elsewhere on the landscape. 
For seven weeks, she continued this practice only to create impossible features upon the face of the canyon, each one more strange and beautiful than the next. On the 49th day of this practice, Yael Bat Elisha awoke to Ophanim, covered with eyes divine and ghastly in front of her. She cried out and covered her face in the presence of the holy creature, and they created sounds toward her that sounded like a strangled rabbit dying. On the 50th day, Yael Bat Elisha died of thirst in the landscape. The Gemara responds, how did this story come to be related if there was no one to witness the death of Yael bat Elisha? Shmuel answers, this is not difficult. Yael wrote her story on a tablet for those of her family who went looking for her. Gemara challenges, how then was she able to write of her own death? Shmuel once again answers, saying, so it is taught in the Baraita. Yael bat Elisha was a woman of many miraculous gifts. Upon hearing this, Rava journeyed deep into a rocky desert until he came upon a basin to attempt to duplicate Yael bat Elisha's creations. For six days he studied Sefer Yetzirah, and on the seventh day a small spring of water appeared in the ground next to him. Again, he studied for six days, and on the seventh, a geyser sprung up on his other side. Rava studied another six days, and the whole basin in front of him became a massive lake. Six days more, Rava studied, and on the seventh, a river walked into the landscape from beyond the horizon, carrying itself on 19 legs until it buried the legs into the ground next to the lake feeding the lake with pure, fresh water. This is why people commonly say a river walks in on 19 legs. Again and again, Rava studied only to have larger and larger quantities of water delivered to him. He swam, riding the rising waters to a high place where it was still dry and continued studying Sefer Yetzirah until he had reached the 49th day, at which time Ophanim arrived and made the sounds of a drowning hen. He returned home and relayed this story to the other sages. After hearing this, Abaye stood and declared, Truly, there has never been a prophet greater than that of Yael bat Elisha. When asked to explain this, Abaye said, Rava and any other sage who had received the secrets of prophecy could quench their own thirst using these powers, but Yael bat Elisha created beauty and death. When he heard this, Rava was struck by a fit of laughter, so great and long-lasting that it hemorrhaged the walls of his stomach. He died shortly after from internal bleeding. Oh, not to worry, Tommy. I always know what to do. A poo bear takes care of his tummy. He fills it with things that are sweet. A poo bear takes care of his tummy. I never forgetting to eat. Well, 
there it is. That, well, that's shit. the story. That's the story. Hava, you want to take it off or, or not take it off? Do you want? <laughs> do you want to? <laughs> well, I guess you know I helped never edit this story long ago when it was first in the womb, and yeah, I guess I've I've wondered since then like what was the was there a specific Talmudic inspiration for this story? And also, like, yeah, like, what? Like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Specifically, I guess I'm, yeah, I'm wondering, like, what you're trying to get to with the piece about creating beauty and death yeah. versus sustenance. So those are my two opening volleys. To answer the what was I trying to get at with beauty and death for assistance? I would say, um, what do you think I was trying to get at? <laughs> well, I have answers. Which is to say that for me, like those kind of things, it's like, it's one of those things that sort of comes out of the process of writing where it's like, this has to be the ending I realized as I was mm-hmm. writing it. And then I was like, what does that mean though? And then I was like, who cares? I'll figure it out later. <laughs> Which is to say, not to say it's like not like true, but it's like a trueness that's coming from this part of me. I don't know. Sometimes I find that like when I write things, I'm trying to evade easy interpretation and um, mm-hmm. like kind of like evade like direct obvious meaning because sometimes that's how I end up creating things that are the most meaningful to me and to others. Mm-hmm. And so with this the ending there, I think I was very much trying to do that and leave it fairly open-ended. But also I think I was hitting on something for myself. If you want to dive into what that may be, that, that would be cool. I'm into that. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think the piece about Yael creating beauty and death, it really reminds me of this attitude I had, especially early on in transition where, you know, for a long time, I was like, I'm gonna die any minute, anything could happen at any time, the likelihood of my death is very high, where I like had this very sort of fatalistic, devil may care attitude about like, I'm just gonna be like a glamorous freak with like no care for my own well-being and like Mm -hmm. if that's all my life is then like so be it and Mm -hmm. that is cool and everything but unfortunately or fortunately i continued living and that attitude just didn't doesn't like work anymore you know and it's no longer sort of enough for me to have that sort of fatalistic aestheticist vibe going on yeah I, it's, okay, so so yeah, I think you're definitely hitting on something that is like very close to my heart. When when like Abaya is saying like she is the greatest because while everyone else can quench their own thirst, she created beauty and death. But then like after that, Rava is like laughing, and I think that laughing is like more where I'm at in like thinking <laughs> about that. I'm on Rava's side here. People like romanticize like artists and stuff like that who like die young and things like that. Mm-hmm. And like it's fucked up. And it's like especially yeah, like earlier in transition feeling like I'm probably going to die young. Like I'm probably going to like not last that long in this kind of yeah, like live fast, die young. Mm-hmm. Bad girls do it well. But like looking at that and I laugh, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, that's naive, you know, like, oh, I like understand that. Like, I like relate to that. But that is also like mm-hmm. naive, right? It's an understandable place to be at. But it is also like sometimes you get there and then sometimes you don't die and then you you're left with like okay what's left what's left in mm-hmm. your life and that's much more the place i'm at is like okay well like how do i then 
keep on living. Yeah, now that you say that, I sort of see the laughter as saying, like, it's ridiculous that you could think that beauty and death is, like, enough, you know? Like, we need, give us our water while we're here sort of thing. But at the same time, it's not saying you're wrong. It's not saying that she's, like, less great. Right. But it's also, it's, like, the idea, your, like, justification for that is, Right, I think it's the idolization of Yael that is laughable. For those reasons specifically. Yeah. Like, if you're going to idolize her, she, like, avenged the death of a hundred Jews by Roman right. soldiers. There's a lot of other things that she's done, but to, to idolize her for dying, you know, is is weird. Mm-hmm. Kind of Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that Rava dies at the end. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if you think that Rava has a beautiful death. I think Rava has a death, which is all death is. It's just death. That doesn't mean anything. It just is. It's just like a fact. It's a cold, hard law of nature. It's like oxygen or gravity or falling off a cliff or a tsunami. You know, it it doesn't care about anything. It's just cold and true. I hear that. And also, I would like to say that death does not exist. That (laughs) (laughs) counterpoint, Mm -hmm. counterpoint, Mm -hmm. uh, separation is fundamentally an illusion. And there's Mm. no beginning or end and no self with which to die. So, I mean, also, yes. Jot that down. That is also true. (laughs) I would say I believe both of those things. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. I mean, in a sense, I guess you could see it as like, you know, Rava and Yael are sort of like on the same, they're on the same wavelength. They're like, whatever, I'm out. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to like merge with all being now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the main things that I took away was listening to you read it. I was like, this would be a good thing to give to someone to explain to them what the sensation of reading Talmud is like. Because the comedy mm. comes through the ridiculousness of it, the kind of off-putting, unexpected twists and questions that they're asking anyone even if they haven't read the talmud can kind of recognize that this is like the experience of what someone who's maybe enjoying or amused by talmud gets when they're reading it yeah i mean i think good fiction sort of compresses and highlights you know when you read a short story like if it were actual realistic if it was actually realistic then it would be incredibly boring Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it compresses, it takes eventful things. It takes things that cause a, a narrative to be created or cause tension or, or momentum or, you know, um, feeling to be had or comedy or, you know, anything. And it, it takes those things and it puts them sort of all right together next to each other in a sort of more compressed way. And I think I was trying to take a lot of the feelings that I have had from reading Talmud and other sacred Jewish texts and putting those together in a compressed way here. It's not trying to like be exactly the way Talmud is, but sometimes Talmud is this compressed in the amount that I've gotten from it. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much Zohar you've read, but Zohar, I think, is even more compressed. You know, Zohar, it's like it's one sentence and then you need like 10 pages of commentary to be like this symbol actually means this, which means this sentence actually means the opposite of itself, which, of course, is a symbol of the higher reality in which. <laughs> yeah, I've got a copy of the volume one of the Pritzker edition of the Zohar. And nice. it is. Yeah, I shelled out for one volume of it because that's all I could afford. But half of every page is footnotes. 
It's like yeah. a half of yeah. the entire text Whoa. is footnoted. Yeah, I highly recommend to you and to all listeners this book, A Journey into the Zohar, an introduction to the Book of Radiance by Nathan Wolsky. I was able to read it through a university library. So if you have university library access, you might have it because it's from State University of New York Press. But it's just great. It's a great book because it really picks apart like the structure of Zoharic narrative through example so it's like you get to learn zohar and sort of get a feel for how zohar stories work highly recommend for listeners trying to dip their 19 toes worth of legs into the zohar (laughs) (laughs) you know this story and this whole conversation makes me think of a question that i'm often wondering and I, i wonder if you have an answer of your own to it, since you wrote this very Talmudic story, why why is Talmud important? Why should we care and study Talmud? Like, is is studying Talmud actually like moving us anywhere positive in the world, either as individuals or as a culture? That's a big question. I know, right? It's a, like every day I'm like tumbling that one over in my mind. I just assumed you might have some thoughts about it because you took the time to sort of produce yeah. more Talmud. Yeah, I did. I did do that, didn't I? You did do that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think the only answer I can give is yes. Yes, it's worthwhile. I I think if I just said no, then I I would, that would be the end of it. And I I also don't think I believe no. That's a real improv faux pas. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I think as we read these Jewish texts and we revisit them, we are, first of all, we're connecting back with like the whole history of Judaism. And um, we're creating meaning out of these materials that have been passed down to us. And we're creating our own meaning, which is unique and, and beautiful. If you're really doing the, like, does this matter to, like, existence and humanity? And not just, like, does this matter to, like, Jews? <laughs> um, then, like, I guess my answer is that, like, as we engage with tradition and text and law and art, which I do think the Talmud is art. We are learning more about ourselves and the world around us. And Talmud, I think especially, is like an extremely good mirror to look at, at the world and yourself through. Mm-hmm. And I think Talmud is special for that. I, I think that is a quality that is particular to Talmud, and, and Talmud is able to do that in a way that other things aren't. And by doing that, I think, yeah, we, we do change the way we move through the world and the way we look at the world and the way we look at the world changes the decisions we make. And it creates, you know, us as people, it creates us into what we will become. Yeah, I love that answer. I want to share with you my answer, which I stole from Ursula K. Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness. Oh, please do. I love that book. Which is pretty much my answer for everything. And it really gets me out of a lot of sticky situations, which is that I think the reason that Talmud is important is because it helps us to, as the protagonist in The Left Hand of Darkness says, it helps the augmentation of the complexity and intensity of the field of intelligent life. And that is basically just like the only goal that there is for me is to augment the complexity and intensity of the field of intelligent life. And if it contributes towards that, then Dianu. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Because my basic my basic worldview is that all existence is at a fundamental level, just consciousness. And the more we increase the sort of complexity and intensity of that consciousness like that to me, is the only goal that there could be. Are you pining for the singularity then? (laughs) Um, I don't feel like I'm uh, a transhumanist in that sense. Uh, I don't necessarily feel like I'm pining for the singularity. I feel like the singularity already is. 
Sure. I'm pining for the singularity in the sense of like Hashem is the singularity. Well, yeah, I mean Moshiach as singularity. You've said that you would totally upload your consciousness. It's true. It's true. I would totally go for digital immortality, but I don't feel like I'm pining for it. You know, I just would take it if it came along. But I mean, yeah, I think fundamentally we're all sort of part of a unified field of consciousness already. And our awareness of that is sort of what we modulate. Would the singularity signal the messianic age? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think it would need to be more than the singularity. Yeah, me too. Part of the way that I'm, I deal with this answer of augmentation of the complexity and intensity of the field of intelligent life is like the most complexity and intensity could only be achieved with a world where liberation is achieved for all, right? That would be a necessary precondition of sort of maximizing that goal. So we could achieve the singularity without that. So there would be more conditions than just the singularity, you know, liberation would still have to be a part of it. Yeah, I agree. Every every bit of technological advantage, quote unquote, progress that I've seen in my life has brought about as many new problems as it has solved old ones. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it feels hard to be a tech utopianist to me at this point, considering all of the like... I don't know, like we look at Bitcoin and like the impact it's having on the environment. It feels like, okay, if it was like, you know, the 80s or 90s, I can see how you would be like, especially early 90s, you know, before got kind of like really, really like super turned into this kind of hyper capitalist thing. I can see how you could be like, oh, like computers are going to create this age of free information and we're going to like push past capitalism in some way. And you could kind of be this like sort of Richard Stallman sort of tech anarchist kind of person but it just seems like at this point we've seen enough tech stuff. Michael, do you have anything to say about this? You're a tech person. I I guess I am a tech person weirdly. I forget that. <laughs> I don't think the singularity is going to happen. I smell hubris and when I smell hubris it smells bad. Everyone kind of imagines that intelligence exists on this linear scale that goes to infinity, but how do we know like intelligence isn't like how blue something is? Once it's blue, it's blue. You can't really get bluer than blue. Yeah, I mean, I think the goal that I'm stating about the field of intelligent life is not about augmenting the intelligence of that field, but to augmenting the variety and intensity of experiences in that field. Intelligence doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. Cool, 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 cool. We're all on the same page. Wow. I love that this episode about a short story of set in an ancient history like Talmud world has actually become a discussion of transhumanism. <laughs> so at the end of the day, and hopefully one day I'll write my novel about this. I think basically the Talmud is a really good example of like a shared consciousness that exists independent of any individual brain that long predates the internet and is sort of some important ingredient in all of this calculation. Whoa. Yeah, I agree. Well, I feel like that feels like as good a place to wrap up as any. This was a wild <laughs> ride. Never thank you for coming back on the show. This is so fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was such a treat to have you on the show again. I feel like we've developed our little cohort of friends of the show that we just have on at regular intervals. I'm so happy to be part of that cohort. I'm sure we'll have you on soon to read and to discuss more. Yeah, maybe I'll dig up a sig, yeah. That'd be cool. Oh, yeah, I would love that. Don't be surprised if when we record on Friday, Hava, I bring a sugya about snake sex. Oh my gosh. Well, dear listeners, thank you all for tuning in. Go check out Never 
and all of Never's stuff at undying.club. Give Never all of your love and attention and then give the rest of it to us and share our shit on social media and join our Patreon. Oh, you're already on our Patreon because this is a patron episode, you fools. So (laughs) thanks for being our patrons and giving us all your love and attention and sharing it with Never today. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.